This is an educational series by the Ukrainian Fire Chaplain Show. I wanted to give you a heads up that we had some technical difficulty on these four episodes on Ignatius of Antioch. The original seven first episodes of the Ukrainian Fire Chaplain Show were done on Clement of Rome at Ignatius of Antioch on a condenser mic, which failed, and I did not realize that it had failed until after I got into post-production for these four episodes on Ignatius of Antioch. So I had to use some backup audio. I want to give you a behind-the-scenes tour real quick of our studio where I have made some pretty sizable upgrades in order to give you a lot better quality and listening experience. So stick with these four episodes on Ignatius. I did polish the audio quite a bit, even though it's back up, and I know you're going to enjoy it. Thanks. Welcome back to part four and our episode in our series covering St. Ignatius of Antioch. We have a jam-packed episode. Today we're going to be starting with his epistle to the Philadelphians, and we are eventually going to be working down into his epistle to the Smyrnians, and if we have time, I'd like to try to get into his uh, letter to Polycarp. Kind of left you hanging with, with a few things, but rather than spending a whole lot of time because we have a big jam-packed episode today, we're just going to go straight into it. If you remember, we did uh, finish up our, our study series with Romans, kind of asking those questions, right, of, you know, the, the privacy of Rome and that, that end series that we talked about where Jesus Christ was the you know, true voice of God, the true prophet of God. So as we move down here into uh, the epistle to the Philadelphians, we're going to start briefly with the greeting and then kind of get into it, right? So uh, he starts, which I salute in the blood of Jesus Christ, who is our eternal and enduring joy, especially if men are in unity with the bishop, the priests, and the deacons, who have been appointed according to the mind of Jesus Christ that he established in security after his own will and by his Holy Spirit. So again, we get this theme again of, you know, the unity of all believers with the bishops and the priests uh, and the deacons as being, you know, the manifestation of God's own inner life and inner unity. So let's skip down to chapter one. Which bishop I know obtained the ministry which pertains to the common good, not of himself, neither by men, nor through vainglory, but by the love of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. For he is in harmony with the commandments of God, even as the harp is with the strings. So again, we see some of the themes that we've covered in earlier epistles that I don't want to dwell on too, too much. Um, but you get this whole natural instrumental conception of the unity of the church uh, as being a manifestation of God's divine life, which is pretty much what you know what I had highlighted in that, that greeting section. We skip down to chapter 2. Wherefore, as children of light and truth, flee from division and wicked doctrines, but where the shepherd is, there follow the sheep. For there are many wolves that appear worthy of credit, who by means of a pernicious pleasure carry captive those who are running towards God. But in your unity they shall have no place. I think one of the takeaway things from this uh, second sentence here, you know, talks about by a, you know means of a pernicious pleasure carry captive those who are running towards God. And I think that's something that really is scary for all of us, is that um, you know, yes, ignorance uh, can buy us some leniency in God's judgment, but how uh, how easy is it for us to be striving to live the good life and to be doing it by a, a most measure or half measure? You know, we're not really 100% dedicated to the truth, maybe just 80%. You know, does that count for God? Is, you know, that 20%, is that a pass? Is that a fail? Is it anything above 70 you know, that, that whole question about the, the risk of 
uh, being led astray, even when we're mostly giving ourselves to God, should really constantly be in our minds because it apparently is here in Ignatius in his, his um, second chapter. Moving down to chapter 3, keep yourselves from those evil plants which Jesus Christ does not tend because they are not the planting of the Father. Not that I have found any division among you, but exceeding purity. For as many errors of God are of Jesus Christ are also with the bishop, and as many as shall in the exercise of repentance return to the unity of the church, these two shall belong to God. Do not err, my brethren, if any man follows him that makes a schism in the church, he shall not inherit the kingdom of God. If anyone walks according to a strange opinion, he agrees not with the passion of Christ. Wow. There's a lot there. Let's try to unpack some of that. First of all, he's talking about um, what we had highlighted a little bit there in Clement's letter. And that is, you know, the possibility of repentance for the wayward, you know, believers or those who've gone astray, morally, doctrinally, otherwise. You know, he doesn't say, you know, once once you've left, you're damned and there's no hope for you, uh, as some of the more rigorous factions in the early church would do as a response to the great difficulty of how do we handle Christians and how do we make room for Christians that denied Christ? You know, is that possible? That it absolutely can't be possible is what some would say. The uh, the Montanists and the Tertullianists and many others. You know, the great question is, well, what did Jesus say with Peter, who denied him three times publicly? What was Peter able to be restored to friendship with Jesus? Yes. Would the early church adopt that and struggle over this question? Yes, they would adopt it. And yes, they would struggle over this question. And ultimately, you know, that biblical forgiveness of our Lord for those who had denied him uh, would be made available. Though at many times and in many different ways, uh, it would be a very laborious, a very intense form of repentance with very heavy external burdens that only, you know, now more in our closer modern age, would um, would more leniency, uh, you know, be granted as far as for the the particular gravity of certain sins that Christians would commit while being in union with the church? You know, uh, many people, even myself, many years ago, asked the question, "Well, if you did this and you did this and you did this, I mean, exactly how many Our Fathers or Hail Marys or you know how many things like that?" And what's interesting is the more Orthodox and Eastern Catholic perspective to uh, confession is very often. You know, explicit penances are not assigned. Typically, uh, it's left up to the discretion of the individual. Now, of course, obviously, some some priests do prefer to follow the Western practice of assigning a penance. Um, but there really is that conception of ultimately, if we're returning to friendship with Christ, we know the burden uh, of the evil that we've done, and we also need to uh, have an understanding. And we often have that self-understanding of, you know, what we've done in like measure needs to you know, be accounted for in our repentance and in our works of love for God to manifest that our heart has turned from grave evil towards grave goodness. One of the other things we could unpack here is, you know, uh, the difficulty of following someone into schism as something that, you know, it's quite challenging. You could say, take a person like Calvin or Luther, you know, you could take someone like King Henry VIII, and many of his followers and stuff like that with the, you know, the great account of the martyrdom of St. Thomas More. And, you know, for them, 
Uh, and those that lived in that generation with the crisis unfolding in front of them, I would think there would be less room uh, for any claims of ignorance. But when you look at people, um, myself being raised in really a non-Christian family, you know, when you look at people hundreds of years later, uh, myself being one of the first converts, uh, even though my ancestors financed Gutenberg to develop the printing press uh, and the, the printing of uh, many numerous things, um, where I was born into and that upbringing, I could certainly say there would be far more excuse for my ignorance than my ancestors who were so proud in the revolt against the church, who, um, you know, according to our family history, they were, you know, glad to be amongst the great rioters and stuff like that in their, uh, you know, leaving of the Catholic Church. But these are just many difficult questions for, for Ignatius, him, and particularly with those two errors that we've talked about, with the Judaizers and the Gnostics and the Docetists, you know, for him, he views the people that know better and that follow into the division. He views that as being without excuse, much like our Lord would say. If they knew, then, you know, they have no excuse for sin. But for many of us that are born into this kind of post-Christian, post-Reformation, you know, in many regards, some of the, the, the craziness that happened in the Catholic Church in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, not just, you know, in the the sex scandal, uh, which I think is often the focus of many people, but I'm talking about like the doctrinal apostasy and this just kind of like hippies for Jesus type movement that's gone on in Protestant and Catholic and indeed even in Orthodox circles, as uh, Alexander Schmeyman would point out. You know, that difficulty, I think, for us being born into that, there's a lot of us that are searching and groping through this. And, you know, yes, it's, it's very much a burden for us to struggle, but at the same time, I don't think it would be, um, you know, as grave of a, a fault on our part uh, compared to those who would have led into, you know, led been the leaders and the pioneers of, of some of the modernist doctrines and, and some of the relativist attitudes and indifferentism that we have towards Christianity today. You know, I think those generations earlier certainly bear more culpability than we would. If anyone walks according to a strange opinion, he agrees not with the passion of Christ. That's a great point. And we'll see, you know, one of the difficult things is at what point has something been made clearly clearly known by the church? Because we'll find people like Origen, Justin Martyr, um, and we'll find many of the early church fathers who would later have their teachings um, or aspects of their teachings clarified. You know, yes, they believe this, but that's not in accord with the true faith. It was the later judgments that would be. And I mentioned that briefly in the, you know, in the Western circle in the Latin churches with Thomas Aquinas, the Immaculate Conception. Let's skip down to chapter four. Take heed then to have but one Eucharist, for there's one flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ, and one cup to show forth the unity of his blood, one altar, as there is one bishop, along with the priests and the deacons, my fellow servants, so that whatsoever you do, you may do it according to the will of God. Again, you see this theme of unity. And you also see this importance on uh, community. Now, it comes from that perspective of like the one bishop, one congregation mindset, um, or that everything would follow under the bishop, even if there were services led by priests or, you know, and uh, services led by deacons in the absence of priests or deacon, uh, absence of priests or bishops. But you really have that whole issue of like, if you have factions, especially those even led by clergy, 
who have Judaizer tendencies or other aberrant doctrinal tendencies, one of the things that will come up uh, soon is the, in the Epistle to Polycarp is the issue with the priest Valens, you know, and there's these questions of what happens when you have people that are separating themselves voluntarily from this. And that is really the emphasis here is one Eucharist. It's not saying we can't have a Saturday night service. It's not saying that, you know, this can't be done or that can't be done, or you have to get permission to go to the bathroom because you can't do anything without the bishop. You know, hey, I, I'm taking a new job. I need the bishop's permission. Hey, I'm going to buy this house. I need the bishop's permission. That's not what they're talking about. What they're talking about is things that do create division to the point of destroying the life of the church. Skip down here to chapter 5. And let also us love the prophets because they have too, have proclaimed the gospel and placed their hope in him, awaiting for him, and whom also believing they are saved through union to Jesus Christ, being holy men, worthy of love and admiration. You know, and so in this context, you know, this, this raises the question, let us, you know, love the prophets. And uh, this whole conception of like a prophetic office is something that we'll see also, where it is really more than just this prescient, it's really more than this just cunning, intelligent proclamation of wisdom. Like there really is this almost divine foresight. Uh, and there really are these amazing gifts of the Spirit that have been given to the church in various ages, but especially in these first years. And this whole conception of the office of the prophet, you know, we in hindsight have a hard time classifying, okay, was that bishops, was that priests, was that laymen, uh, possibly all of the above. And that's not something that I really, um, really can give you that great of an answer other than to just, you know, recognize that it is something that the early early church understood that those charisms and gifts of the Spirit were present, um, especially when they were exercised in union with the church. Let's skip down here to chapter 6. But if anyone preached the Jewish law unto you, don't listen to them. And again, this is, um, you know, th this is a end of the first century, beginning of the second century repetition of many of Paul's grave concerns that we can trace back to the Acts of the Apostles, that we can trace particularly to the Galatians and many others, where there's this whole issue of, you know, you've, you've been baptized and, and accepted in uh, Jesus Christ and become a member of the church. You've been illuminated through chrismation and First Communion, which uh, was the practice of the early church, Eastern and Western churches. Uh, really, there was just the, the Catholic Orthodox Church for the first thousand years. There was no distinction of you're Catholic and you're Orthodox in the modern sense of the term. There just was the Catholic Church, the universal church with the fullness of the Orthodox faith. Um, and, you know, those who would receive that and become members of it, uh, many of them uh, consistently would sit back and say, well, if you accepted these holy mysteries, because in the first 1500 and even in parts of the Latin church up until the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, you know, infants were given confirmation is what they would say. We'd say chrismation, it's just same word, different word, same reality. Uh, infants would be given, you know, confirmation in, in first communion. Well, that was all done. So to receive the fullness of the mysteries of God um, and then to be told, well, if unless you're circumcised, you're damned. You know, that is a huge stumbling block, not only to Gentiles, but that's also a huge obstacle to the grace of Jesus Christ. You're saying that the salvation or illumination they've received by becoming partakers of the Spirit is all a sham because they haven't had their foreskin snipped. You know, and, and that struggle in the early church was really clearly resolved at, at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts, but 
it's something that comes up again and again throughout history, and it's something even we deal with in our own day with those uh, particular groups, especially the Seventh-day Adventists and others who are Sabbath keepers, but they really have not studied uh, some of them being kind of late novelties in the past past couple of centuries. Like, they haven't studied the development of this. And many of them that I've engaged with are shocked to find out that Christians worshipped on Sunday in the very beginning and looking at the epistles of, you know, the Didache, the first catechism, so to speak, and looking at uh, Irenaeus of Leon and looking at Justin Martyr and looking here, right? There's just many aspects that we can learn from the early church that are important for how we live as Christians today. They're continuing down in chapter 6. They're in my judgment, but as tombstones and graves of the dead, upon which are written only the names of men, flee them, lest any time being conquered by his artifices causes you to grow weak in your love. And, you know, he's saying that these are basically dead men walking. And I think it's kind of ironic. We have one of the, the big popular shows, The Walking Dead, all this modern fascination with zombies and stuff like that. And what's interesting is the more that we kind of dig through and I can actually go through some of the church fathers, like many of them would basically call people living in sin as the walking dead. Uh, you know, my paraphrase of them, so to speak. Let's skip down to chapter 7 here. Do nothing without the bishop. Keep your bodies as the temples of God. Love unity, avoid divisions, be followers of Christ Jesus as even he is of the Father. Again, it's that same theme over and over, down to chapter 8. I therefore did what belonged to me as a man devoted to unity, for where there is division and wrath, God does not dwell. Wow. That's some pretty powerful words. To all of them that repent, the Lord grants forgiveness. If they turn in penitence to the unity of God and communion with the bishop. Again, this whole once saved, always saved, or if you fall away, you can never redeem yourselves. Do you think that's consistent with what Ignatius is presenting as the gospel right here? I don't think that is. I think that um, it's very easy to overlook the tender mercies of God and how he would not want the sacrifice of his son to be in vain. Uh, at, at even any moment up until the last. You know, think about Judas. He could have been the greatest saint that the church ever had if he had turned before he finally hung himself. Skipping down to chapter 10, it will become you as a church of God to elect a deacon to act as the, you know, ambassador of God. And, and I, I highlight this because what's interesting is uh, deacons were often emissaries of the bishop. They were the messengers of the bishop. And a lot of people, especially Roman Catholics and even even Eastern Orthodox and Eastern Catholic churches, really sometimes struggle at a local level with the absence of deacons and their resurgence in you know the past few decades and really saying, well, what are they good for? Um, the, the Latin church, especially when you look liturgically, has very little of a function for what the deacon does. So a lot of people kind of sit back and say, well, what kind of are they good for? But if you sit back and really study not just what they are liturgically, especially in the Eastern churches and in the Latin churches, they take more sacramental functions with baptisms and marriages and we'll sidestep all of the theological differences between the Eastern and Western churches here. But I think one of the big things that we forget is that, you know, the deacons, are, they're not just glorified laymen and they're not just the servants of the priests. They're actually like the hands and the eyes and the ears of the bishop. They were the emissaries of the bishop. They were very often um, 
the right-hand man of the bishop, you know, in, in the early centuries of the church. And I think that's something that's slowly starting to be recovered, you know, as we make more room for deacons in our uh, churches today. So that kind of wraps up the end of his uh, epistle to the Philadelphians. And, and now we're going to skip down into the epistle to uh, the Smyrnians. So the epistle to the Smyrnians, um, obviously back to the home church of Polycarp. You say, who's Polycarp? We'll get to him. He Once again, this is your host, Christopher, of the Ukrainian Fire Chaplain Show. If you have not already, go ahead and look at our website, theufcshow.com. It's got information about us and ways that you can follow, subscribe, or support us. We're on various podcast platforms. We're on Facebook and YouTube. And if you're able to, consider supporting us on Patron. Also want to give a shout out to Daniel Atchison, the music artist Atch, for permission to use his song forever in our productions. Until next time. Would like to offer my special thanks to the Antiochian Orthodox Choir Group, Incense, for letting us use their song, The Great Perkimenon. You can find links to their music in the description.